Hey, how you doing? My name is Nolan. I'm from Past Gas by Donut Media. We are the world's number one automotive podcast. That's right. We're a storytelling show. This week, it's part three of our history of Mazda. Last week, we talked about the rotary engine and how they started a little bit of racing. This week, they got a lot more serious with it. They needed to make a big splash in the world stage. They decided to go to Le Mans over there in France and prove that they could keep up with the Europeans and the Americans. They did have a hard time with it, though. It's very intriguing. The rotary engine we talked about last week had some challenges. This is for the real Mazda heads and anybody who's curious about automotive history in general. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Pass gas. I'll see you there. In the midst of the worst drought of the 20th century, Joseph Sadi Lacan pushed his Newport de Lage Sesquiplan racing plane onto the runway at the Villa Sauvage Aerodrome, 35 miles south of Paris. Sadi Lacan didn't care about the dry grass and sweltering temperatures that were sowing the seeds of famine after the world was already recovering from World War I. He had a record to break. At the time, airplanes had a top speed of 145 miles per hour. But the former World War I fighter pilot knew he could go faster. Sadi Lacan enlisted Hispano Suiza, builders of engines that were dropped into luxury cars like Rolls Royces. They were also known for building racing engines for airplanes during World War I. Hispano Suiza crafted a water-cooled 1,120 cubic inch V8 single overhead cam engine that had been tweaked to produce a brain-melting 320 horsepower. For comparison, the fastest car of the day was the Mercedes-Benz 680S Sautchik Torpedo. The Benz would hit a top speed of 110 miles per hour thanks to its 6.8 liter inline six dual carbureted supercharged engine that produced a stallion shaming 180 horsepower. Saudi LeCant climbed into his airborne muscle plane and flew right into the history books. Soaring over the brown fields just south of war-torn Paris, he not only pushed the plane to 200 miles per hour, but he sustained that speed for more than 62 miles. A plane is one thing, but what about a car? Was it even possible for a land-based vehicle to reach 200 miles per hour? And if it was, could it be mass-produced? What companies joined in on the cutthroat race to shatter the 200-mile-per-hour barrier? Who were the madmen that actually made it happen? And did yet another grudge match with Enzo Ferrari lead to another milestone in automotive history? Today on Fast Gas, it's a sprint and a marathon. We're going inside the decades-long quest to build a production car that could hit 200 miles per hour. Fast Gas Podcast. It's about cars. It's not about sports. Sadi Lacan. Sadi Lacan. Sadi Lacan. Ha ha ha. Newport de la Sesquiplan. Villa Sauvage Aeroport. South Chica. That was a rough one to get through. Yeah. You got, you did it though. You did a good job. I'm proud of you. I had to yeah. like run up to each of them, you know, like, yeah, like a big ledge. The diction, the diction champ of donut <laughs> is what your new name is. Yeah. Dr. Diction. <laughs> <laughs> What's up, everybody? I'm Dr. Diction. Welcome to Past Gas. Uh, I'm your host, Nolan Sykes, joined by my other hosts. We got Joe Weber. What's up, Wink Wink Nation? And James Pumphrey. I'll give you a high five for a dollar. <laughs> 
yeah, this week we're talking uh, 200 miles per hour, the the elusive barrier that uh, hid from engineers for decades after the invention of the automobile. Um, what's the fastest you guys have ever gone in a car? 168. 168? In what? In the Demon. Oh, that's cool. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> that's not electronically limited? I don't know. It might be. No, it, uh, I mean, it has drag tires on it, and those things are made to withstand uh, high speed, and that's near the top speed of the Demon because it's geared so short for the drag strip. Mm-hmm. Like the, the, the Hellcat, I think, has a top speed of like 205. The Demon, I think, is like 186 or something like that because of the gear. Yeah. I drove 168 on a closed course. That's fun, man. On the way back from the airport. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm a I'm a relative milk toast in this department. I've only gone 120 in my dad's was it fifth gen Eclipse? Fifth gen. It has the lines on the side of the door. It was 2001. Third. Okay. The the one that uh, uh, Tyrese had in Too yes. Fast. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, Tyrese is my dad. <laughs> okay, sweet. Uh, I went like in the high 130s. When I went out to Vegas with the the bumper to bumper team, and we went to Vegas Speedway and drove those little indie car deals. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, that was, that was fun. Was it terrifying? No, uh, it was really fun. I just can't imagine like the real indie cars, like the full modern cars, going over two hundred like flat out on that course the whole time. Yeah, because those guys' necks must be just insanely strong. My neck was like dying after. After like twenty laps, well, yeah, they work their necks like all the time. Yeah, we could do that at the office if you want a stronger neck. I'll have the <laughs> I'll get those resistance bands, and you just go like this. <laughs> yeah, Nolan, I'm gonna go in later if you want to meet me and work on your neck. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't, I don't want neck lessons. No, let's do some neck work, bro. I don't want to do neck work right now. Let's, we'll both do it. We'll, let's get big necks Dude, this year. Women love <laughs> thick necks. Thick necks. Yeah, I want my neck to be thicker than my head. <laughs> and that's the only weird thing about your body. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't work out anything else. I just got <laughs> just a huge neck. neck. <laughs> my shirts are so expensive. Custom made. All V-necks. <laughs> um, hey, tying it back to this this uh, podcast we're doing, I know how they measure speed on land with cars and stuff. But how are they measuring speed way back in the day with planes? Probably a windmill. What does that even mean? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> planes, I think, are their their speed is measured in knots, I believe, and I, I, they probably had speedometers in planes back then. But I also think they might have also timed the the transit speed between the two distances oh yeah. yeah between one point and the other they time it then they do math yeah then they do math and then when radar was then when radar was invented they probably used that oh okay. radar too yeah i watched this real real quick tangent i watched this history of the fastball and they used to measure uh pitch speed by having it was paved in oh, gold yeah. it's always summer, summer it never, never gets, gets cold. cold dude i love fastball that, whatever happened that song's to amazing our our, produ- our producer tommy we used to be in a cover band we cover that song all the time the way by fastball uh but anyways this this cop would drive on a motorcycle 85 miles per hour and when he would hit 
this line that pitcher would pitch and then they would have a screen made of paper. And when the ball would go through the paper, they would measure it uh, with a slow-mo camera based on where the cop on the motorcycle was in relation to the paper. They'd be like, yeah, it's about 85 miles per hour. You ever seen a mouse on a motorcycle? You ever read that book? No. It's a great book. You should check it out. Is it, uh, is it like a, something I could knock out in an afternoon? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the series, though, might take you a little longer. There's a lot of those books about that mouse. Ralph. Ralph. Oh, wait. Does he have cute little goggles? Yeah, okay, I remember he's got this. A he's oh, got yeah. a helmet made out of a ping pong ball. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Shout, Ralph, if you're listening, <laughs> <laughs> big fans. Pascast, big fan. Love to have you on. Talk motorcycles. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the race to 200 miles per hour. Let's do it. History is still debating who the first person to break 200 MPH actually was. We know it wasn't some daring caveman who left off a mountaintop because the terminal velocity of a falling human is around 120 miles per hour. So, no one achieved the so-called double ton until internal combustion engines entered the scene. It's fully possible, and quite probable, that Joseph Sandy Lacant was not the first airplane-bound human to hit 200 miles per hour. Post-World War I, the sky was littered with daring fighter pilots trying to break records and push aviation into its next phase. Saadi Lacant was locked into an ongoing back and forth with dozens of other pilots who would one-up each other and push the top speed from 175 to 180 to 200, 220, and so on. Aerial speed claims were obviously hard to measure and confirm, but going fast in the sky was a relatively straightforward engineering problem. But back on the ground, there was a whole host of issues. Potholes, curves, unpredictable road surfaces, traction and wheel hop, all made going fast a lot trickier. Before we could have a production car go 200 miles per hour, first someone had to prove that cars were up to the task. Enter Sir Henry Seagrave. Now, Seagrave was a legitimate badass. He was born in Ballimer. <laughs> the town. That's how you say it. That's, my family's from Ballimer. City that reads. <laughs> Now, he was born in Ballimer, but his Irish family brought him back to Ireland where he was raised. When World War I broke out, the 18-year-old Seagrave was so eager to join the battle that he volunteered to join the Royal Warwickshire Regiment, a unit that had suffered more casualties than any other fighting group in World War I. Send the Irish in first, they'd say. <laughs> Seagrave fought with such abandon that he was dubbed the Lion's Cub. He was known for hurling himself into battle and took pleasure in fighting blood-drenched hand-to-hand combat. What a psycho. At the Battle of Aubert's, he was partaking in some spirited gunplay in knee-deep mud when his revolver clogged up. He then hurled an ammunition belt at a German and began choking the man before he was shot in the shoulder. While recuperating in a hospital, he decided to switch gears and join the Royal Flying Corps where he was almost immediately shot down by German anti-aircraft fire over Somme, France, and in the crash, severely injured his ankle and declared himself the world's worst pilot. <laughs> I, you know, maybe it's not the pilot, too. Maybe, the, like, the planes back then were, they Made had, like, cloth paper. wings. Yeah, they had, like, super thin wings, no armor, slow. Give himself, give yourself some credit, Seagrave. I'm the world's worst pilot. 
And I want to marry you. <laughs> After being grounded and getting married, see, Seagrave <laughs> shuffled around <laughs> a few different military departments before his many injuries forced him to retire. This poor guy. Uh, but little things like bullet holes and shattered ankles didn't keep Seagrave from shifting his focus to auto racing. He climbed behind the wheel of a Duroc-made Talbot racer, a 20-horsepower, 1,500cc lightweight whip that looked like a soapbox car and won a 200-mile race. Sounds sick. Seagrave joined the formidable Sunbeam Talbot Duroc works team and competed in every race that he could. He even won a bunch of them. But in 1922, he was forced to drop out of the French Grand Prix because leaks in his car were giving him too many chemical burns. Oh, no. This guy, man. Wow. I'm the world's worst driver. I'm the world's most injured man, and I want to marry you. That's Scottish. (laughs) I don't want to do ballet. I don't want to do boxing. I want to get chemical burns. (laughs) The next year, they fixed the skin melting issues, and Seagrave became the first British person to win a Grand Prix in a British car. The next year, they fixed the skin melting issues, and Seagrave became the first British person to win the Grand Prix in a British car. But wins weren't enough. He wanted to do ballet, and he wanted to sport in the record books. Well, technically, he's American. He was born in America. Whoa, dude. A nice red hat, Nolan. <laughs> Give us back Seagrave. <laughs> Give us back Seagrave. Let's go Seagrave. Uh, <laughs> Let's go Seagrave. What do you think chemicals were leaking out of his car that were burning him? Gas. Gas doesn't burn you, does it? Probably hot, hot oil and hot coolant. Oh, I love that hot. I love that emo band, Hot, <laughs> Hot Oil. Bandages, 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 bandages. <laughs> Man, we're really going through it today. All of it. A lot of steam. (laughs) Now, that's what I call music. (laughs) 58. Seagrave flirted with different records and managed some incredible driving feats, but none would top his early morning run at the Daytona Beach Road Course in March of 1927. Just five years after the first airplane broke through 200 miles per hour, the land speed record was ripe for the plucking. (laughs) <laughs> Yummy. <laughs> the team showed up on the beach that morning with a monster of a car, nicknamed the Slug. It was hidden under a tarp. <laughs> Don't look at that. That's the Slug. Don't look at that. It's the Slug. <sighs> the sunbeam-built, low-arrow blob of a car was 25 feet long and 8 feet wide. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> what? <laughs> it weighed 4 tons and was powered by two engines. Oh, my God. The slug's engines were duo Sunbeam Matabel 22.4 liter airplane engines that they had pulled out of a power boat. One of the engines sat in front of the driver and the other behind. Wait, so this these are airplane engines that were put into a boat that are now in a car? Yeah, so they very dynamic, multi-talented engines. It looks exactly like it. <laughs> it's even got a urethra in the front. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Yep. Yeah, this is like the uh, the Peter Griffin car that he r- drives into the tunnel over and over again. This thing's sick, though. That's awesome. It doesn't look eight feet wide. It looks kind of skinny, but I guess the wheels are really big. Yeah, I don't think it's eight feet wide. 
Probably like six feet wide. That's probably like six six feet wide. Eight eight European feet wide. Yeah, feet were smaller back then. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Seagrave's team would start the rear engine using compressed air to get it to turn over. Then a mechanical friction clutch would roar the front motor to life, and a dog clutch would link them together in preparation of flying down the beach. Wow, so they used the, the clutch from the front from the rear engine to start the front engine. That's kind of sick. Like it was like a push start. That's pretty cool. The four-ton beast managed two runs before calling it a day. The first run was clocked at 200.608 miles per hour and 207.015 miles per hour on the second. And that's the end of the show. Thanks for listening. <laughs> We've done it. Seagrave then decided that driving on land was too easy. So he commissioned a highly customized racing boat to be built and broke the 100-mile-per-hour barrier on the water. And that boat looked like a... (laughs) (laughs) As impressive as these accomplishments were, in many ways, they were the easy button of making it into the history books. I don't think it was that easy, though. No, it seems really hard. You got to build a whole big (laughs) car. (laughs) To go beyond custom-built vehicles and into mass production was an undertaking of an entirely different scale which may be why it took decades longer for the first car to be built on an assembly line to crack 200 miles per hour. Breaking 200 miles per hour is not a cakewalk, no matter what anyone tells you, all right? (laughs) Don't believe them, okay? There's a reason why Seagrave chose Daytona Beach. It was flat and firm, and there wasn't anything to crash into besides the ocean or a whale (laughs) or a bikini. Or volleyball net. (laughs) (laughs) Things get a little more complicated on a racetrack, especially an oval one. Since the early days of NASCAR, speeds crept north of 100 miles per hour, then 150 for decades. As car tech improved, race cars, well, they got faster. Better cams, better heads, better flow, meant better horsepower and better speeds. But it wasn't until 1970 that a burly NASCAR beast was able to break the 200 mile per hour barrier. Buddy Baker, behind the wheel of a very customized and later banned 1969 Charger Daytona, brought the stock car to 200 miles per hour at Talladega Super Speedway. Hell yeah, he did. The bright blue Billy Badass Beast featured a 575 horsepower, 426 Hemi under the hood, with a Holley Dominator carburetor and a full aero package that resulted in a 0.29 drag coefficient. That's really good for the time. Mm-hmm. While NASCARs used to be actual stock cars, by 1969, they were far from their factory-made counterparts. Dude, I bet this guy sold a lot of holly carbs. <laughs> Nolan, is this your dream car? Uh, yeah, it's definitely like top three dream car. Yeah. You know, I'm, a, I'm partial to the Weber carbs, so... This is <laughs> nice. Well, it's your dynasty. It's my dynasty. Carbs and grills. Carbs and grills... That's your new like side channel where you smoke cigars and, and drink bourbon and talk about <laughs> watches. Yeah. <laughs> Me and uh, Gavin Newsom. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get back to more past guests, but right now, a word from our sponsors. Production supercars have been pushing past 200 miles per hour since the 80s, while special edition American cars needed decades to get there. Enzo Ferrari and Fruzio Ramaghini had already been knocking on that door. 
Uh, it all started with Nicola Matarazzi, who has definitely earned a place in our automotive Mount Rushmore power baby. Oh, nice. Yeah, see? That's called a pun. <laughs> Matarazzi was born into a family of doctors who spent years pushing him into medical school, but instead he started racing go-karts. <laughs> yeah, at, at the age of 24. Yeah. <laughs> no, go-karts. No, I'll just go, go-karts. <laughs> it's like, it's not even every year a car. <laughs> it's a child car. What is he doing? <laughs> the wheels are so small. <laughs> I got to side with the doctors on this one. Yeah. <laughs> Throughout the mid-60s, he interned at the Mobile Oil Refinery in Naples, where he learned the ins and outs of octane properties and racing fuel formulations. Okay, so we, we cut him a little short by saying he wanted to race go-karts. Then in 1966, he went to the Targa Florio where he watched Porsche 904s and Ferrari Dinos duke it out, and Matarazzi fell in love. By the early 70s, he wiggled his way onto the Lancia technical team where he spent days working calculations on suspension, chassis, and steering structures. Then one day, he was asked to help out the team and oversee the modification and aerodynamics of the Group 5 Stratos Silhouette. His work was held in such high regard that he was asked to move over to Fiat and design the Formula Fiat, a BART car for the Young Racer series. Then Fiat asked him to work on their Formula 2 cars, and then the big time, baby, Formula E. Now, around that time, Enzo Ferrari had heard tales of the scrappy Matarazzi wrenching away at Fiat, and he made a few calls. Enzo invited the young engineer to join Team Ferrari as the head of design and engineering. Matarazzi had gained a reputation as king of the spinny boys, i.e. turbos, and he alone was responsible for introducing Enzo's fellas to the turbocharger. Wow, this guy's so multifaceted. Enzo trusted Matarazzi so much that he put him in charge of developing the motors for the 328 Turbo, Ferrari 288 GTO, 288 GTO Evolution, Testarossa 412 GT, and then while practically on his deathbed, Enzo said, Matarazzi, my boy, build me a car. <laughs> Ugh, I die. I die now. <laughs> build me a car that is also a bed. <laughs> a race car. A bed. Whoa. And make it uh, a twin bed. <laughs> <laughs> a little between the bed and the sky. I like it to touch both sides of the edge of the bed. Can we watch a home alone? <laughs> Matarazzi had already been testing the waters at Ferrari and asking higher ups for permission to go nuts with a Group B rally car. He battled with the bean counters and the suits at the top, but at the end of the day, he was given a wink and a nod and told to develop the GTO Evolution with one condition. He had to do all the work behind closed doors and after hours. This is actually where Wink Wink Nation comes from. It's Enzo winking at Matarazzi on his deathbed. So, origin story. Before Matarazzi could even get his ideas sculpted in a clay, Group B was shut down for being too deadly to both <laughs> fans and drivers. Auto racing execs couldn't justify all those deaths of drivers and spectators. <laughs> Back at Ferrari HQ, Matarazzi was left twiddling his 
big, huge thumbs and staring at five <laughs> leftover evolutions with no use for them. And thus, the Ferrari F40 was born. This car was ridiculous. More ridiculous. It had more ridiculousness than MTV's afternoon block. <laughs> the 2,700-pound body was so low to the ground that running over... Yeah, I used to write for ridiculousness. Wait, what was that how like? do you write? You watch YouTube videos, like yeah. fail videos, and you write a bunch of jokes to pitch to the guests. Yeah. Oh, and then, yeah, this is where we slime Chanel. Yeah. <laughs> this is where ASAP Rocky gets slimed. Yes, yeah, right, so ASAP Rocky, right? Rocky's going to watch this guy fall off a roof. <laughs> I need six jokes to pitch to ASAP Rocky. Yeah. They have to be in his, his voice, not ASAP Ferg's voice, not Chanel's voice, not ASAP Rock's voice. That's a totally different one. Yeah. That's a lot of that's a lot of words. Pull the pen out. The motor was a twin turbo 2.9 liter V8 that kicked out 477 ponies at 7,000 RPMs and 426 pounds of twerks. It was a fire spin monster made into a race car bed of a car and not a lot of Ferrari fans could get behind it because it was super uncomfortable to drive around in. It would clear zero to 16, four seconds and drop a 12 in the quarter mile all Ooh. while achieving a top speed of 203 miles per hour. And that's the end of the show. <laughs> <laughs> the only one I've seen in person was at a uh, Deus car meet. It might be because we like live in LA or something, but all, you hear about how rare these are so often. And while I haven't seen like a ton of them in person, I've definitely seen like a number of them on my friends' Instagrams. <laughs> yeah, like and way and more than I thought possible. I went to a car show and there was at least two of them there, and a what? and an F fifty. Love that F fifty. Yeah, one of my first like forays into. LA supercar culture was back in like 2016. I like snuck into the San Marino, like auto classic, which is like the super highfalutin car show. And by snuck in, I mean, I showed up like two hours late after it started. So they weren't charging anybody anymore. Um, but David Lee, uh, is a big time Ferrari collector and he had his whole, uh, collection there, like all the F cars, basically it was super sick. Got to see his F 40 and F 50 and Enzo, and LaFerrari, I think, all in the same place. Wow. No, it's pretty rad. You can see, looking at the GTO evolution, going back to the story real quick, you can definitely see where the <laughs> yeah, F40 came from. let's go back to the story from. real quick. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, real quick. Let's visit the story. <laughs> I mean, you can see the underpinnings <laughs> no, no, of the F40. I want to hear more about your weekends. Hey, man. I, I'm sorry. They were just things that happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> but you can, see the, you can see the underpinnings, like... Uh, the F40 is obviously way more refined than the GTO Evolution, but the Evolution's also like very sick looking. It definitely looks like it was built by a Skunk Works division within Ferrari. You know? Yeah, all the duct tape gives it away. Yeah, a lot of ducting, a lot of like open vents. In 1987, Team Ferrari unleashed a marketing blitzkrieg about how the last car Enzo signed off on before his death cracked the 200 mile per hour record. The phone at Ferrari HQ was ringing off of the hook. It was going, that's what they sound like in Europe. Everybody from Eddie Murphy to Ronald Reagan wanted to buy one. 
Between 1987 and 1992, they produced 1,315 of the cars, making the F40 the first true production car to reach 200 miles per hour. Or was it? <gasps> what? I thought the story was over, James. No. Turns out it's not. I own a car that's even more rare than the F40. They only made <laughs> 1,012 uh, Shiro specials. Dang, dude. Can't wait till you post that on Bring a Trailer and see how much it'll bring in. I bet you'll get loot. I'll get lit? Yeah, you'll get lit with all the loot. You'll uh, you'll be your own worst enemy with the band Lit. <laughs> What's up with Joe? He can't stop skipping. Dude, he's loot lit. Uh, quick correction. I uh, At the beginning of the episode, in our discussion of the Dodge Demon, I, I said that the car had a top speed of 185. Uh, I was incorrect. It actually is limited electronically to 168 because the drag radials actually are limited to that speed. But if you put different tires on it and uh, get that limiter tuned out of the car, you can hit over 200 miles an hour. Thank you. James hit the limit. James did hit the limit. Who did Who did flagpole sitta? Who's that? Harvey band? Danger. Okay. So we'll get lit. We'll get Harvey Danger. We'll get fastball. And we're going to have our own concert. At we're going to have our own when we we're, we're young concert. Yeah. yeah. That's going to be actually real. Third Eye Blind's going to be there. No. Doesn't nope. fit. What? Doesn't fit. Yeah, it does. Lit barely, no. lit barely fits. We're going to have Alkaline Trio and... I think it's Alkaline Trio, uh, Harvey Danger. Yeah. Fastball. And Lit. Jimmy Eat World. Jimmy Eat World. How does Lit or how does Alkaline Trio and Fastball go together? Because they're good. They're good. <laughs> so is Third Eye Blind. Third Eye Blind is not a good band. Dude, you listen to how it's going to be. Oh, that's a good song. The song's about meth. No, no that's a tr- semi-charmed life. Yeah, semi-charmed. How's it gonna be? Semi-charmed kind of life. And jumper, dude, and never let you go. I wish you would step back from that ledge, my friend. You nailed that, James. That was great. You could. It's great acoustics in here. Cut ties with all the lies that you've been living in, and if you do not want to, couldn't hit it. Maybe I protested so much to Third Eye Blind because I'm a huge fan. Yeah, dude, that song <laughs> rules. That's a good song. My Discord screen name is So you're a big Carlos Mencia fan? Before Car YouTube, there were Car Magazines. And in their heyday, Road and Track used to throw proving parties every once in a while. And they would invite manufacturers to test out their best and brightest on a track monitored by an intrepid crew of car journalists. Uh, proving party sounds like something Jeffrey Epstein would throw. Oh, God. Prove that you're underage. <laughs> yeah, Bill Clinton Jesus and Bill Christ. Gates are there d- doing a pyramid. <laughs> oh, God. An Eiffel Tower? Yeah. Uh, these journalists at their proving parties readied their stopwatches and clipboards and talked every company into shipping their most expensive cars to different tracks. And in 1987, it was Volkswagen's Era Leasing track in Gifhorn, Germany. I love the Guilford girls. Yeah. Out of all the proving parties held, the 1987 edition was arguably the most remarkable. Two Porsche 959s, Ferrari GTO, and a Testarossa. 
a couple of Koenig Turbo Porsches, an Isdera Imperator 108i, which I've never heard of, an AMG Hammer, a Countach, and a Canary Yellow Roof Twin Turbo 911 lined up the test track. Dude, to be a fly on a wall at this little party? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. God. Can you imagine the watches that were being talked about? (laughs) (laughs) Dude, you're on fire today. We're all on fire, dude. Roast. This is a great episode. This thing's sick. I've seen this thing before. uh, This is at the Peterson, the East Dara Imperator. Uh, You can go check this out at the Peterson right now. So it's based on a Mercedes? Why does it have a Mercedes badge uh, on it? I believe it uses a Mercedes engine, and that's it. Oh, oh. yeah. I used to have one of these. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> you forgot? Yeah. You've had a lot of cars. Yeah, I forgot I used to have an Isdera Imperator 108. Yeah. I only had it for like <laughs> six months. Yeah. I could see why you'd forget that, yeah. <laughs> Well, it's really hard to get into because between the seat and the door, there's about a foot and a half yeah. of shelf. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> what song is that? Yeah! Is that like Alice in Chains or something? No, no, that's a that's Velvet Revolver. Yeah, is it? No. That's Slither, right? No, that's Velvet Revolver. That's no, Stone Devil uh, Pilots. Stone Devil Pilots, yeah. Frozen Avengers, they can come. <laughs> yes, they can definitely come, dude. <laughs> the dude died. I yeah. know. R.I.P. Man, R.I.P. All, all sing. Okay, cool, dude. And then Chester, Chester yeah! uh, from Lincoln Park, <laughs> he sang for them for a while too. What? Oh yeah, but he's dead too. He died as well. Yeah. R.I.P. Dude, that <laughs> man. Who can we get to sing for Chester? Uh, Chris Cornell. Oh. All of our heroes are dead. <laughs> Lost generation. Sorry, siren. There's a lot of nursing homes on my street, which is why there's so many sirens. There's a lot of them. Yeah, dude. I went. I went a couple times when my great grandma was in the hospice. But one of the days they had turtle soup. Literally, what? literally turtle meat, <laughs> and, and it was a whole turtle day. They they like did, painted faces green. They had turtle soup. <laughs> what? It, I was like, I took one sip, and I was like, no, I don't ever need to eat turtle again. That's gross. That's like a weird mix between like that's like the face painting is like some daycare yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, and then you make them eat eat the, eat the, the turtle. The turtle, the turtle soup didn't gross me out because, like, like I'm sure they're like, yeah, we see turtle soup all the time. We don't care about animals. They're animals, right? They're like, we we used to eat baboon soup. <laughs> yeah, but then like the element of like the proceeding face painting, <laughs> face paint really made me they're sad. Out, they're in like the, the 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 group room watching Franklin beforehand. They're bringing <laughs> yeah. in tortoises as like a petting. They hired a petting zoo. Yeah, and like some administrator was like. I don't know. They act like little because let's paint their faces. I don't know. I don't have a budget. That's insane, Joe. That's crazy. (laughs) Rest in peace, nanny. I fought in the war. (laughs) (laughs) I saved the world. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Eat your turtle soup, you idiot. Eat your turtle soup or I'll... 
punch you in the ribs and nobody will know because old people always have bruises. Jeez. Oh, oh my, my God. God. Eat your turtle soup or I won't change you this weekend. <laughs> Woo. We'll be right back with more of this story. But first, a word from our sponsors. Meanwhile, back in Germany at the proving party, uh, at this point, the F-40 had already earned its 200-mile-per-hour bragging rights, but no one outside of Ferrari's testing team had actually seen the car reach that milestone. In fact, they were being a bit hush-hush about it for some reason. Dude, Ferrari's notorious for exaggerating records. That's all I'm saying. No F-40 showed up to the road and track proving party that misty day, even though it would have been the perfect time to stare the gaggle of supercars in the face and establish dominance. The auto journos worked their way through the poster-worthy car collection and one by one started clocking times. The Imperator clocked in at 176 miles per hour. The Countach Quattrovole posted a 179. The Ferrari GTO also did 179. The AMG Hammer sick black sedan hit 183 testarossa 185 the porsche 959 freaked everyone out when it topped out at 198 miles per hour but it was one very special and very yellow car that blew past 200 miles per hour in a very well documented way james take it away the car was a product of a man named aloy roof jr the brains behind Roof Automobile GmbH. The company got its start all the way back in 1939 in Pfaffenhausen, Germany as Auto Roof, founded by Aloy's father, Aloy Roof Sr. Roof Sr. tinkered with different types of cars, but in 1959, hit it big with a tour bus design. <laughs> Roof Jr. fell in love with cars as a kid and used his position as son of a big-time bus builder, to buy his way into the Porsche world. That's the name of my autobiography. Son of a big-time bus builder. <laughs> son of a big-time bus builder. Son of a big-time bus builder. That's hot. <laughs> Roof Jr. started tinkering with local Porsches out of his father's bus repair shop and got some serious praise, even from Team Porsche. And when his dad passed and Roof Jr. refocused the company to only work on making Porsches even more awesome than they already were, by 1977, he debuted the first real roof Porsche, a highly tuned version of the Porsche 930 with a stroked out 3.3 liter engine that flew around the Nürburgring. In 78, Roof built a beefy NA911 with a 3.2 liter motor that pumped out 217 horsepowers. And it was so popular, they cracked open a waiting list and started collecting stacks of German cash. Oh, Deutschmarks, oh. baby. Back at the era, Lysen Roof's latest creation was flexing its wings and winning the day. The little yellow monster was pushing 470 horsepower through its super-tweaked twin-turbo 3.4-liter flat six and blowing people's minds. The little birdie that could absolutely killed it and hit a top speed of 211 miles per hour, crushing the unproven 201 miles per hour of the F40. Fun anecdote, the reason that they painted it yellow like no cars were yellow back then. It was, I think it was like literally the paint from a taxi. <laughs> and they're like, the car was like black and they were like, oh, it's going to be cloudy. We can't have a black car. They're going to be taking pictures. We need it to stand out. Yeah. They're like, well, the Ferraris are going to be red. So we can't do red. 
And they were like, well, what about yellow? And they were like, dude, life's a, <laughs> life's a risk. Yeah. <laughs> Fiddler. Oh, Fiddler's going <laughs> to yeah. play our festival too. Oh, I never got into them. They're good. Me and Nolan went to, uh, I want to say Bruce Wayne. What's his name? Bruce yeah, Myers. Bruce Meyer. <laughs> uh, special little garage in Beverly Hills and saw Yellowbird 001 freaking on a yeah. loading dock. It wasn't even on display. It was just hanging out in this little corner. Well, back when I hosted Bumper to Bumper, we made an episode on it. Yeah, if you'd like to see the car and learn more about its amazing history and features and see James stand next to it, check out that video. Oh, it's I a good sit one. in it too, boy. That was the first script that Jeremiah ever wrote for Donut. No, it was Harley Davidson. I don't think so. Yeah, because I worked with him on his first script, and it was Harley, 100%. Well, they don't know yeah. that, Joe. So <laughs> <laughs> Now they do. So, great. Cool. Yeah, his first script was Harley Davidson. <laughs> Maybe his first solo script, because I really held his hand on Harley Davidson. He didn't even know how to spell Harley. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he thought it was he thought it was hardly Davidson. <laughs> hardly Davidson. And he thought it was, his first draft was about Pete Davidson. <laughs> <laughs> After the 200 mile per hour barrier was broken, it didn't take long for more standard production cars to push past the double century barrier. In 2016, Cadillac passed it with the CTSV. And it probably won't be long until Dodge stuffs a Hellcat into a minivan and breaks the 200 mile per hour limit. It's no surprise then that now manufacturers are out here breaking 300 miles per hour in production cars. At the tail end of 2019, Bugatti took their Chiron Supersport to a test track and not only broke through 200 miles per hour with ease, but smashed through 300 miles per hour, establishing itself as the fastest production car ever. Ever. This was a car hitting airplane speeds on a track, and it begs the question, where do we stop? 400 miles per hour? 500? What's the fastest a ground-bound human can travel in a mass-produced vehicle? And how much are they willing to spend on a car that can go that fast? The real truth is, it's not just about speed. It's about competition. To differentiate their products, automakers have turned to eye-opening top speeds time and time again. Even if the vast majority of consumers will never hit the top speed their car is capable of, there's something about knowing it's possible that's proven to have enduring appeal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good story. Tires are the are the main limitation right now. Yeah, the the drivers get tired when they're doing the Yeah, they get runs. tired. Uh the Bugatti, I think the tires that are on the Chiron uh can only withstand the top speed for about 10 minutes before they uh collapse. So that's not fun. Well, it, it drains its gas tank in 7 minutes, so also that. Oh, that's good. That's good to yeah, know. It's like a a built-in that's Phil. good to know when I buy mine. I'll keep that in mind. Um, Don't want to get stranded so out there. So 400 miles, yeah, 400 miles per hour seems like a huge hurdle, but, I mean, just like 200 miles per hour did seem like a huge accomplishment 100 years ago, like 400 miles per hour in 50 years might be possible. Who knows? So we'll see. It seems so dangerous. Oh, yeah, yeah, that'd be crazy. Don't do that. Don't do that on, uh, don't do that on Adams Boulevard. You know, in the middle of the night, well, it's uh, dangerous. It was just driving in L.A. is dangerous. Uh. <laughs> yeah, 400 <laughs> miles per hour. You tried parking on Sunset? Yeah, what about uh, the bus lanes in Culver City? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
All right. We got a letter from Luke F. He writes, what's good? So I was listening to the barn find episode and it reminded me that there's a parking garage that I like to go to at night where I just park my car at the top level and just sit and clear my head. In that parking garage is a third gen Miata that's just been abandoned and is covered in a very thick layer of dust. While it's not the most desirable Miata out there, I still so badly want to save it from its life just sitting there. Are there any cars that you found abandoned and that you just want to save so badly? Love the show. I've been a huge fan of everything y'all do with Donut ever since I discovered the channel. Thank you, Luke. Keep chilling out in that parking garage, buddy. Yeah, yeah that's kind of save. I want to save the... I mean, you got to clear your head from time to time. I get it. Uh, I want to save the BMW 850i from our parking lot because it's just sitting there <laughs> unregistered. I just want to drive it around. I don't even want to hoon it. I'm not Max. Not going to crash it. The registration is kind of the deal right now. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll get that sorted. I want to save it. There is a... Uh, there's a Baja bug near my parents' house that sat there since I was a young, young child. Um, and I I asked the guy one day, like five years ago, if he would be willing to sell it. I thought he'd want like $2,000 for it, you know, at most, because it's a pile. And it's like really kind of falling apart. But it looks cool. He wanted $12,000 for it. Get out of here, dude. <laughs> yeah. Get out of here. Get out of here, yeah. dude. You heard Get out of here, get man. Get out of here. here. Go to a parking lot stop bothering everyone yeah go you gotta go clear your head you gotta clear go clear your head because he's clearly you're messed up you're messed <laughs> up dude you old ass <laughs> <laughs> yeah i wanted to say that but i was polite and walked away why don't you go eat a f- <laughs> bagel you dumbass old man Put something in your mouth and stop talking. Yeah, go eat some turtle soup. Go you put old some turtle piece. soup. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when I was buying my Forerunner, paint your face. When I was buying my Forerunner, I had a friend who has a '97 Forerunner with 240 thousand miles on it. He's like, "Dude, just buy mine." I was like, "How much do you want?" Thinking he'd be like, 2000 bucks, four thousand bucks, whatever." He wanted sixteen thousand bucks. I was like, dude, get out of here. Who is that? Let's call him out. Let's call him out, dude. Chachi. No, his name is Cosmic Ray. Oh, Cosmic Cos. Ray, dude. It's Cos? not Cosmic Ray. It's Cosmic Ray. He's cool. He makes so Oh, Cosmic Ray. Yeah. That's way too much money. Come on, dude. What Come on, dude. Dude, get out of here. I don't get. care if you make surfboards, dude. I don't care if me and Tommy watched The Revenant at your house 10 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, that's a great that's a great link beginning to the end of the episode. Yeah, that's, that's a nice little bookend. If you'd like to email the show, hit us up at passgas at donutmedia.com. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us about where you to hang out. Yeah, uh, how do you clear your head? I need help doing it. My head is foggy. The meds aren't working. Uh, no amount of therapy eases my pain. Ease James's pain by following him at James Pumphrey. Follow Joe at Joe G. Weber. Hit Joe's DMs. Say what's up. Yeah, hit, everybody hit Joe <laughs> nah, in the DMs. I'm good. Everybody DM uh, Joe. Follow ask me him questions. At Nolan J. Sykes. Big Just thank ask you. Ask him questions. <laughs> ask him what car you should get. I do actually like that kind of stuff ask joe how to fix your car and what car you should get i only ruin uh big thank you to our producers again we got uh gavin kinsell and thomas willett and our writer this week 
Jacob Desjardins. Jacob Desjardins. Yeah, Desjardins. Jacob Desjardins, thank you for making me say. <laughs> yeah, that's why there are so many French words in this episode. Newport de la Sesquiplan. Yeah. Um, see you next time. Bye.